0: I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson. And this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Pursuit peeps, I have missed you. I took a bit of a hiatus so that I could begin growing Pursuit of Gold beyond the podcast. And while I'm not going to tell you everything just yet, there is a whole lot of excitement coming down the pipe. But for now, rest assured that the Pursuit of Gold podcast that you know and love is back and in full swing. And man, do we have a power-packed lineup to kick off this fall. This episode is brought to you by our amazing sponsor, Katsu Global. Katsu has made such a huge difference in my life, both in strength and recovery. So I am very thankful for their support of this podcast. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Katsu later on in this episode. Today's guest is made of the extra special secret sauce. John Doolittle earned a Bachelor of Science degree from the U.S. Air Force Academy and a Master's of Science in Defense Analysis, Special Operations, Low Intensity Conflict from the Naval Postgraduate School. He worked as a hard hat salvage diver for three years and then completed BUDS, or what many of us know as SEAL training. Most of John's Navy career was focused on our military's reaction to 9-11. So for over 20 years, he was assigned to various SEAL teams and conducted multiple deployments throughout Europe, Africa, the Pacific, and the Middle East. And if that's not enough, while getting his master's degree, he also did a solo swim across the English Channel in memory of a fallen teammate and friend to raise money for the Navy SEAL Foundation. John's last duty station in the Navy was at U.S. Special Operations Command, where he led the preservation of the Force and Family Program, as well as the Human Performance Program, which employs a small army of physical therapists, strength coaches, trainers, nutritionists, psychologists, and counselors to support the 73,000 personnel making up the SOCOM Enterprise. These resources are now embedded in all of our nation's Special Operations Command elements around the globe and are focused on repairing and sustaining our nation's most important weapon system, the soldier, sailor, airman, or marine. John is a leader in every sense of the word, so get ready for a discussion rich with lessons and impactful takeaways for sport and life. Well, it's no secret that I love the mental side of training and competing. It's kind of my jam. I also know that the mental game is often the toughest hurdle that athletes must harness in order to reach their biggest goals. So this summer, I branched out and began coaching athletes on their mindset and performance. From juniors to pros, diving to shooting, athletes trusted me with their biggest struggles and left our one-on-one calls smiling with renewed hope and more confidence. There were a lot of common stumbling blocks that we discussed, like mental blocks, Not knowing what went wrong, lack of communication, focusing on the wrong things, and anxiousness. Does any of that sound familiar? Some of the best things that came out of these coaching sessions were that athletes realized they're not the only ones dealing with their struggles. And they started to understand that there are ways to move past their struggles. Some of the topics we focused on improving were creating routines, how to stay in the moment, how to break down mental blocks, the importance of accountability, processing versus emotions, working on visualization, how to properly assess the competition, and the importance of journaling. Sometimes it's just helpful to have someone who's been in your shoes to help guide you out of the woods. And I've definitely been there, y'all. So if one-on-one coaching is something that interests you, you can learn more at laurawilkinson.com slash coaching. That's laurawilkinson.com slash coaching or just click the link in the show notes. Before we start, make sure you smash that subscribe button and give us a five-star review if you enjoy the Pursuit of Gold podcast. And please tell your friends about this podcast so that we can continue to improve and grow to that next level so that we can bring you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right. I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. John Doolittle, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I am so stoked that you're here.
1: Uh, (laughs) Right on, Laura. I am stoked to be here. (laughs) Really an an, an honor and pleasure to uh, be here with you.
0: Uh, Well, okay. I've been waiting with anticipation to have you on the show because I think you're going to bring just a really different but super crucial perspective on what the mind is truly capable of to our listeners today. So super excited for that. I would love it if you could kind of first tell us a bit about your background, because they're going to know obviously by the title and the intro that you you know have so much experience as a Navy SEAL. But obviously, you didn't start as a Navy SEAL. Like, were you in athletics growing up? Did you always have a dream of going to a military? Like, what led you to that path?
1: Okay, well, uh, I guess we'll start on on me. I, I grew up in um, Northern California. My dad was an Air Force Reserve officer. He worked for a phone company. And uh, I kind of got into swimming uh, later on, but that was kind of my sport. I kind of messed up my, my leg in, in high school playing basketball. And uh, they told me I wouldn't be able to swim any, or uh, play basketball anymore. I mean, I grew up doing, what, what do you call it, rec, rec league summer, mm-hmm. summer swimming, but I needed something. And uh, so uh, in my freshman year in, in high school, I just went all in. And swimming, I swam for a guy uh, named Mike Troy. His name will come up again, and um that was my sport. did that big time all through high school uh started to realize I could actually be pretty good at it. started looking at college options ended up going to the Air Force Academy. I swam at the Air Force Academy. Uh, at the end of my time there, I did an, what's known as a, uh, an inner service transfer into the Navy, went into the Navy, did a 25 plus year career in the Navy and, uh, retired out of the Navy, um, four, almost, almost five years ago. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a California, uh, raised kid swimmer thought I was going to go into the air force. You know, this was back in the uh, first. Top Gun era, you know. Like, <laughs> what was that, like 36 years ago? I
0: don't that, know. Right? Just stop talking about the dates.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> well, so did you go to Air Force for swimming or was military your vision?
1: You know, it's funny. My my dad, if you ask my dad, did you want John to go in the military? He's like, he had no inclination to push me towards the military. Did, The the reason I went, it it was twofold. One, that movie was super cool. I I thought flying jets would be cool. And two, a good friend of mine that I grew up with went to the Air Force Academy and told me how great it was. And I was like, well, free education. (laughs) I'm putting my fingers up in quotes. Free. The military looks kind of cool. Pretty fun. I think I'll go down that road. So, no, it wasn't about sport, but sports I would say is probably what got me in because my my grades uh, were not that good. My SATs and all those scores weren't very good, but they needed a breaststroker at the Air Force Academy. And that just happened to be my thing. Uh, So yeah, they they pulled me in.
0: (laughs) Well, so what did you think of the Air Force Academy? Because I don't think it was exactly what you had planned on, was it?
1: Oh my gosh. (laughs) I, I grew up, you know, surfing, skateboarding, I was kind of a typical Northern California guy. We, we'd go surf in Capitola and Santa Cruz and stuff. So my, my first introduction to the Air Force Academy was, my first real introduction was we, we take the buses, they, they go up the hill towards the Academy, and there's this big ramp where all the buses stop and all the kids in civilian clothes are waiting to step off the bus. And this guy gets on the bus and and he came up to like my chest and he just starts screaming at us. I mean, screaming at us. And I'm sitting up in the front of the bus and we were having a good time, coking and joking, enjoying ourselves. And I looked at him. I was like, hey, dude, we're all right here. You don't have to yell at us. And he stopped. Oh, gosh. Everything he was doing. He looked right at me and he said, did you just call me? dude. <laughs> and the rest of my time at the Air Force Academy was very measurable after that. <laughs>
0: oh, man.
1: You can imagine. I was not, I wasn't really cut out for a military academy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so, so what changed, so you survived Air Force Academy. Like, what, I did. What, uh, what changed from now? What made you want to go into the Navy? It doesn't sound like this was exactly your path in
1: life. Well, Mike Troy, back, back to Mike, he was, uh, I think of him as kind of a second dad in my life. Laura, as you well know, when you're training a lot and you're with a coach every morning and every night and every Saturday, you you become pretty close to your coaches. Mm-hmm. And um, my junior year at the academy, uh, they told us, if you're not in the top third of your class. So this would have been in 91. So we were going to graduate in 92, and they told us, if you aren't in the top third of your class, you will not be going to pilot training. You'll be doing something else in the Air Force. So I called Mike, and I was like, hey, Mike, what do you think I should do? And without skipping the beat, he said, John, you should go in the Navy, join your SEAL teams. <laughs> now, you got to remember, Mike was a double gold medalist from 1960 Olympics world record holder and uh oh, wow. 200 fly you know i'm looking at a picture of him right now on the cover of sports illustrated from 1960 and he did uh, a couple tours in vietnam as a seal officer and he used to tell us stories in between sets or at workouts about training and SEAL teams and everything that was involved with it so I wasn't surprised that he said that, but it kind of caught me on my heels. Cause I never, I never thought in a million years that that was something I would do or that something I could do. And uh, yeah, he just, he threw it out there. He's like, no, no, really, really look into it. I I'm pretty sure you can transfer between the services and you would be great in the teams. You should give it a shot. And that, so uh, really, what planted the seed was Mike telling me that at the beginning of my junior year in '91, and uh, so that's what I ended up doing.
0: So, not really enjoying the military aspect of Air Force. Were you intimidated at all to go into Navy? And I mean, because Navy SEAL training is like the hardest. You know, it's like legendary out there, and I'm sure we'll get into that in a minute. But like, was that not intimidating to you at all?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know what the hell I was kidding.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ignorance is bliss sometimes, right?
1: Right, right. I I mean, I knew I wasn't going to be able to fly, and I wanted to find something else. And I trusted Mike. I knew he wouldn't say something like that to me if he didn't honestly believe it. If he didn't think I could make it through, he would not have suggested it.
0: There was a lot of trust there with Mike, wasn't there? Tons. Yeah.
1: That relationship was completely based on trust. And um, I learned a lot from, uh, from Mike about trusting people. And we can get into that later about um, one of my biggest takeaways from my time in the teams was about relationships based on trust.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, mm-hmm. a lot of that starts with our parents, but it also starts with mentors and Mike was that guy for me, yeah, 100%.
0: That's awesome. Well, so tell us a little bit about what that was like. I mean, did you, like, because you, you later got your master's, but you first went through BUDS and all of that, right?
1: Yeah. So um, it's funny, there were four of us at the academy that wanted to go to BUDS. And once the Navy put all that together, they told two of us that they were not going to let us go to basic underwater demolition school. Bud's training, which is SEAL training, and I was one of the two guys they told that uh, you you can't go. You can try to come in later. So I was kind of bummed, but I went into what they called the uh, diving and salvage navy. Uh, I went and got all the training to become a salvage diver. Uh, drove a salvage ship. That's I was a dive officer and and did that for a while, for three years. Every six months, I tried to get into Bud's, and I kept getting denied, denied, denied. So. My classmate, the two classmates, they went into class 186 and I didn't get into uh, Bud's class uh, until class 213. So I was about three years behind him. Whoa! But kind of a good lesson there. You know, you, you got a lot of people in, in life that tell you that you can't do things or that certain things are not authorized or approved or, you know, I had to get a medical waiver, all these things. And you learn that You know, if you really put your mind to something, you really can achieve about anything uh, you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I just kept trying and uh, eventually got in.
0: Okay, well, let me let me pause here but before we go into the intensity of buds. But like, yeah. were you not discouraged at all? I mean, that's three years. Like most people would be so frustrated and like, I'm done with this. I'm moving on. How, I mean, you make it sound like, ah, you know, I learned some good lessons. I just kept trying. Like you make it sound so easy. And it's things like that that I think stop people in their tracks and derail all their plans.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of gloss over it a little bit because, you know, the first time I was told I can't go, I was like, wait a minute, that's the whole reason I'm leaving the Air Force (laughs) right?" is to go to Navy SEAL trail. What do you mean? I can't do it. And I even looked at getting out of the Navy and going back in the Air Force and they're like, (laughs) "Oh, no, 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 (laughs) you already, you already signed on the dotted line, man. You're done. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I think it's easy to get frustrated with things that happen in life. Early on, I I used to listen uh, to this guy. His name's Jim Rohn. I don't think he's around anymore. I think he passed away. Maybe. I don't know. But he, he used to say this all the time. He said, uh, you can't change the wind, but you can change the set of your sails. And I always thought what he meant by that was, you know, there's certain things in life that happen and bad things happen to everyone nobody's immune from bad stuff happening but how you deal with that or how you react to the bad things that happen that kind of defines you and helps you deal with things because i mean we all we all have our our crosses to bear right i mean it, nobody goes through life without something significant happening whether it's losing a loved one or uh you know real significant things like that and when you when you look at the, the real bad things that can happen to people i mean okay so not not getting into buds and right again six months later it's really not that big a deal and honestly laura i was having a blast in the navy as an ensign is anyway, as, as, <laughs> you know that's the junior most junior officer in the in the navy rank is an ensign and i was having a great time and i was in the diving navy and um you know, we were doing some good work, and I was meeting some great, great people. but um, yeah, it took me a little while to get there.
0: Walk us through, you know, Hell Week and Buds. I mean, people hear about it, and it's so I feel like it's become this giant mythological <laughs> kind of thing. but like walk us through what that was like. I mean, tell us about the infamous Hell Week and then the training that that ensues after that.
1: Okay, so uh little little buds one on one for your audience here. Yeah, I mean there's a lot of books, there's a lot of podcasts, there's a lot there's a lot of stuff out there. But the most basic elements, it's three phases. First phase, second phase, third phase. The third phase is uh that's what you end with out on San Clemente Island. That's where you learn about all the weapons, you learn about uh land navigation, mobility platforms, insertion, extraction, mission planning that's the last thing you deal with the second phase of training is combat swimmer that's kind of in in the teams you you wouldn't necessarily know this with all the post 9-11 missions that we've been involved in but um you know for a long time our bread and butter was underwater ship attack clandestine entry into uh harbors and disabling ships and that kind of stuff and that's the second phase of training Where we lose the vast majority of the students, of the candidates, is during first phase. And um, I believe it was the fifth week for us, or maybe it's the sixth week of first phase, is hell week. And as an example of attrition and BUDS, my class, we had 155 people start in our class and we graduated 42 and of those 42 31 were originals so from our original 155 we graduated 31 (laughs) originals in class 213 so that's a 80 percent attrition rate and that's pretty normal for a buds class they say 70 to 80 percent attrition is about about normal and the majority of those 80% leave during the six days of hell week. Wow. It is definitely designed to kind of find those who are not going to be cut out for this line of work. Right. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Walk walk us through that insane six days. Like, what does that look like?
1: It starts on uh, Sunday night. They bring in a bunch of pizza and uh, whatever, whatever you want is the class to do. You can pretty much do. You watch a movie.
0: It's like your last meal before death. <laughs>
1: yeah, they get you all fat, dumb, and happy, and you're just kind of chilling out. <laughs> and then uh, at some point, and it's different uh, without giving away too much.
0: <laughs> of course, of course. At
1: some point that night, all hell breaks loose. And that is the beginning of six days of being wet, of being sandy, of being cold. We'll come back to the cold, Uh, of just being incredibly uncomfortable. You'll hear team guys say all the time, cold, wet, and sandy, cold, wet, and sandy. (laughs) And it really is the definition of um, mental toughness over physical toughness. Because physically, they break you down almost immediately. You know, they, they'll, they'll have you do push-ups till failure. They'll have you do squats. They'll have you run up and down to the berms. They'll have you do these log PTs. And everyone fails physically pretty quick. Like that first night, you go to failure on just about everything you do. But the mental piece is so important. And you learn very quickly that when you thought your body was done that you actually do have more to give, and uh, I, I think you start learning that through SEAL training at the very beginning. But not until Hell Week does it really, really uh, hit home how much the human body, how much pain and misery the human body really can uh, can handle, and it's mental. Right, you hear guys say it's ninety percent mental, ten percent fit. you know I don't know what mm-hmm. the breakdown is, but it is such a mental uh, head game. And if you you really come out of hell week, and there's so much more training after hell week, you know, it takes guys like a year to get their trident. But if you can come out of hell week, it's like you carry yourself a little bit different knowing that if I can survive that, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I can probably do uh, a lot of things in life. And I think it's one of the reasons you see so many team guys succeeding in just about anything they put their mind to. But, uh, yeah, hell week is, um, th- th- that was an interesting time.
0: <laughs> interesting time. Yeah. Well, so what can you, like, how do you mentally get ready for that or go through that? Like, where do you focus? Like, how do you endure that knowing that you're like physically failing at everything? Like, how do you get your mind to a place to endure that?
1: You learn real quickly that it's not an individual sport. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. And and you know
1: I grew up in a in a sport that was very. I mean, yes, there's a team aspect of course to swimming and diving. You you want to win as a team, but for swimming and, and Eric and I, your your husband, I've talked about this. You know, it's it's a very it's a very binary thing. I mean, mm-hmm. there is a time, and you are going to try and beat that time. You either do it or you do not. And when that's your type of sport, you know, it's a very individual effort. You quickly learned at Bud's training that if you're trying to do something as an individual, you will fail. There are very few things, even the swimming in, in Bud's, you can't do it by yourself. Everybody has a swim buddy, and if the two of you fail, don't make the time, you you both fail the swim.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's as a matter of fact, those that shine in a class as an individual often are targeted by the instructors. Really? Yeah. We 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 had guys come into our class. We had a world class uh, triathlete. We had an incredible full ride University of Oklahoma football star. But they were, I mean, they were individuals, and you could see it in the different things they did. Physically, they were uh, complete studs on the pull up bar, push ups, on the runs, on the swims, and all these things. And then when they rolled into Hell Week and they tried to do things on their own, not leaning on their team. In Hell Week, you break all the, the whole class is broken into boat crews. And everything you do, you do with your boat crew. And you either succeed or fail as a boat crew. And you take that, that darn. Inflatable boat carried around on your head, that thing goes with you everywhere. And um, real quickly, individuals are uh, identified, and you simply can't make through that training as an individual. And and there's a lot of uh, you know analogies to life there that we can get into if you want as well. Definitely. Yeah, definitely team sport.
0: Yeah, well, I mean that's and I didn't realize that started so early, even in the Hell Week. That's that's pretty cool. And I know because you have to, like when you quit, you have to, don't you have to go ring a bell? Yeah. (laughs) Is that like the ultimate humiliation or what? Like, yeah. Walk me through the psychology of that.
1: Well, okay. So you're always cold during hell week.
0: And wet and sandy.
1: (laughs) And wet and sandy. Cold, (laughs) wet and sandy. And every, especially the night evolutions when the sun goes down, there's always a van with hot coffee and donuts. Soft music, a heater. Oh my gosh! And the bell. <laughs> the instructors take the bell with them everywhere. <laughs> and when you start, I don't know if I said this, but those six days, you essentially are not sleeping. You get a little five ten minute cat nap here and there. Your brain starts playing tricks on you from the lack of sleep.
0: You're sleep deprived.
1: Yeah, and and um, you know part of the the goal with that type of training. Is to identify those that when uh, they get really uncomfortable, when they get really tired, they end up making decisions that uh, maybe are not the best. And whether or not somebody is going to quit, you want to identify that pretty early on. Because after a career in the team, there's so so many times on missions and, and whatnot. I mean, you're just dead Bone tired, but you still have to be able to function. So yeah, they they take that bill around, and uh, there's a thing called surf torture where everybody interlocks their arms. You lay in the surf zone, and as the surf washes over your body, the whole class is together in one line in the the, the surf zone. You know, it's not a straight line. Part of the line gets sucked out. Part of the line gets kicked up on the beach, and the instructors will sit there and say, "Well." We will stay here until somebody quits. And, you know, you feel yourself starting to hype out and it always, and it works every time. There's always somebody in the group that says, "Ah, I'm done. And they get up and ring the bell. And then when they go up and they ring the bell and then you basically never see them again.
0: Man, how do you keep your head in a place to not be that guy?
1: I think it's different. For everybody, for me, it was just knowing when I was going into that situation, I just I wasn't gonna quit. I beat that into my head. I might get hurt, I might get what we would call med rolled, medically rolled. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to have that mentality. It's just no matter what happens, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much it sucks, they might drag me out of training for failing evolutions or getting hurt, but I will never ever quit. And that, I think, is kind of more than anything what they tried to get out of the students and buds is to learn that you can have that mindset and succeed.
0: How would you kind of comparing that to athletics and people doing sports like how can somebody adopt that type of mindset without going through buds training necessarily but but adopting that same kind of never get up there and have to drag me out of here I will not quit like how in outside of that training, can we maybe try to adopt that same type of mindset? Do you have any recommendations or um, examples?
1: Yeah, I mean, Mike used to talk. Mike Troy used to talk to us all the time about being uncomfortable. Just about any sport to get really good at a sport to become elite in a sport, you're going to have to deal with discomfort. And if you know that going in, and you mentally prepare yourself for the discomfort and tell yourself that, yeah, I'm going it's going to suck and I'm ready for that. Then that's a big battle that if you can knock that out early, a lot of people never, never get there. That's a big piece of it. I think is just understanding that to be as good as you are at diving, there's a lot of discomfort that comes along with that. And a long time ago, I'm sure you told yourself, hey, I'm, I'm just going to deal with it. I'm going to work through it. I want When the alarm goes off, I'm not going to hit the snooze. I'm going to get up and get after it. When I'm at workouts, when I'm training, I'm 100% in. My mind's not wandering. I'm not thinking about other stuff. Your diet, your sleep hygiene, all that stuff, I think it it all starts with just telling yourself, it's gonna be uncomfortable and being okay with it, I think that applies to a lot
0: yes, and i and I think what I'm hearing from you too is it's something you have to constantly tell yourself and choose to do or to not give up, like you are constantly having to tell yourself and remind yourself and making that choice, and I think that's that's huge, and some people think you just you're supposed to just naturally have that ability to like be really tough and not give up, but it's like it's a choice every day, every moment it's a choice, right,
1: yeah. Yeah, and the natural ability. I mean, we, we would talk about this in the teams all the time. I I always wanted the performer that wasn't necessarily the natural performer, the naturally best in, in the group or in the platoon or at the team. I wanted the guy who was willing to put in the hard work. He might not be as naturally gifted as this other person, but I'd rather take somebody... It tries and fails again and again and learns from their failures and learns from their mistakes versus the natural gifted athlete or tactical athlete in our case or sniper, you know. what? So that's a good, good example, right? You know, you, and a lot of it is based on trust, right, especially when you're talking about team dynamics. You could have, you're building a SEAL platoon, you have an option of two snipers, and one is one of the recognized better snipers at the team, but there's drama with him, and he's not maybe uh, 100% trustworthy because of some things that happened on Liberty, let's say. And the other sniper is, yes, he's still a SEAL sniper. He might not be as good as that other guy, but he is a good good teammate, and he's trusted, and he's well-respected, and he's a hard worker. I want that guy. I want the guy that is willing to put in the work, try and fail, learn from his mistakes, and he's a trusted teammate. I'll take that guy over the guy that's a better shot. And I say that, and, and the guys, guys look at me and be like, what? You would take him over a guy that's obviously a better, better sniper in this case? I said, yep, 100%. And I think most guys that I've uh, worked with, and I think that that's a pretty common approach in in the SEAL teams at least.
0: Well, and I think that's actually plays a lot in sports too. Like I, my coach will always say too, I would rather have somebody who has like zero talent but wants to be here and is committed to working and getting better. You know, it's not only is that more a privilege to coach, but also to watch them grow and succeed, and they're going to have those valuable skills in life. And I. I have seen talented divers come in and they skyrocket and they're amazing. But because they have talent, they never put in the work. They never do the extra. It's like very rare for somebody who is naturally talented to go the extra mile. So they plateau at a certain point and then everybody starts passing them eventually. And it's a rare occasion when you get somebody who is both talented and wants to work hard and strives like they're not, you know, that's a very rare thing. So I, I love the, the dynamic is very much the same there for sure.
1: Well, and it gets into that never quit attitude, which absolutely applies in individual sports, team sports, especially in team sports, everybody's watching everybody. And, and that never quit mindset what we would call a force multiplier. Yes, and it's contagious. So people see that, and people feed off of it. Super important, and um, we would see that in the team. Good attitude, force multiplier. Bad attitude, that's contagious as well. And you know we we would do everything we could in training to not let those that with the individual attitude, the bad attitudes, but you know, there's always some bad apples that sneak through. But um, yeah, never quit mindset is very, very powerful and contagious to others on the team for sure.
0: Definitely. I first started using Katsu after I discovered it could be used for recovery. After speaking with a Navy SEAL friend that had used katsu to help him recover from traumatic injuries, I decided to give it a try for an ongoing tricep issue I had. Within the first week, I noticed the cramping I had in my tricep would completely stop after a katsu session. It also helped me recover much faster after platform workouts. After seeing such great recovery, I started to add katsu into some strength training and plyometric workouts as well. And the craziest side effect that I noticed was that I was hardly ever sore from a hard workout that I did while wearing the katsu bands. I feel like katsu has given me the ability to get stronger while recovering faster. Katsu is the pioneer and gold standard of the emerging blood flow restriction market. Navy SEALs, world champions, and gold medalists use katsu daily for improved performance, quicker rehabilitation, and unprecedented recovery from hard workouts, intense competitions, and even jet lag. Katsu was invented in Japan and has been used at every Winter and Summer Olympics since 1988. Katsu Global offers a variety of easy-to-use products that can be used safely and effectively in the comfort of your home, office, or during travel. It can be used for any workout or between training and competitions for recovery. To learn more about Katsu and even get 10% off, go to laurawilkinson.com katsu. That's laurawilkinson.com slash katsu. K-A-A-T-S-U. Now, tell me, because I know team is, is obviously super huge, you've, you've kind of hinted at that a little bit. Tell us more about why team is so important. And yeah, just kind of, I know you have a lot to say on that, on teamwork and relationships in there. So I'll just kind of give you the floor.
1: <laughs> relationships are really important. And I, I don't think you can have a relationship in a performance world that's ideal unless it's based on trust. And trust takes time. What I always tell guys is it's very difficult to build trust over a course of time, but it's very easy to lose trust. And if somebody in an organization does something where the organization's lost trust in that individual, it takes a long time to get that back. And you can see that in relationships, you can see that in industry, you can see that in business, but you definitely see it in high performing elite, small teams. And um, a lot is based off of that.
0: Tell us why Why is it so important in steals to have team? Like why, why from the beginning of BUDS do they start working you in teams and picking off individuals?
1: As a small, coherent unit, you can achieve more. Like it's not one plus one equals two. Uh, if you have a, a, a team that's firing on all the pistons and everybody's after that same mission end goal, it becomes a one plus one equals three, or one plus one equals four, or one plus one plus one equals seven. It becomes incredibly powerful. And you learn early on that there's almost nothing you can do with a small team of like-minded individuals. You know, we see that in combat operations with a very small group of people downrange achieving strategic outcomes. But we also see that in sports, right? And especially in a, in a team sport, you can have the best player on the planet. But you know, let's just use basketball as an example, right? You can have the best player on the planet, but if the other four Aren't completely on board and everybody's not uh, supporting each other, then the team fails. And I think that that applies to everything. I do feel it's important, and this piece might not apply so much to sport, but definitely applies to life. It, there was n- never uh, in a SEAL platoon, SEAL platoons, uh, 16 people usually, and a platoon is broken down into uh, eight man squads and four-man fire teams. But in every platoon, there is redundancy built into that platoon. There's never just one radio guy, one comm guy. There's never just one sniper. There's never just one point man. There's redundancy in every capability in the team. So everybody can do everything in the team. You might not have the best of everything, but everybody, kind of that master of jack of all trade, master of none, but you do have some uh, uh, masters in the organization, but everybody knows how to do everything a little bit. That's an important piece of it.
0: Well, I think this is real quick. I want to kind of compare that to some famous sports teams we've had. I, I think this is a great comparison because I remember, I think it was maybe 2004, they instead of taking a really good team, they picked a bunch of individual, really good basketball players. And I mean, they got a bronze, which, you know, bronze at the Olympics is great, but for the U.S. and basketball, it was like ridiculous, you know? So right. they didn't play well together because they were all there for themselves. They didn't know how to play together. Like it was kind of a mess. But like in 1980 hockey team, they kind of scrapped all the really good players, took a bunch of nobodies that worked well together in their positions, and they defeated the like undefeatable Soviets, you know? So I I love what you're saying. And on the sports side of it, like that's where my mind goes, like exactly what you're saying. Obviously, your stakes are a little higher (laughs) with what you've done, (laughs) but um, for the sports uh, analogy, that's where I'm going.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of carryover from sports into the military and both sports and military into civilian life or into business. I think it's one of the reasons you're seeing guys like Jocko and some of these others being really successful outside of the military, because the approaches with team dynamics, especially small team dynamics uh, and business, they, they apply to so much.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, where were we on that? So, I mean, walking into the team, so you've got people who, who are, you know, kind of jack of all trades, master of many, um, and they work well together. And I mean, obviously, that's really important as you're going into combat, because your lives are at stake in there too, right? And I mean, don't you guys have kind of a, a mo- Like you don't leave anyone behind, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's one one of the mottos in the teams, but that's a motto in, in many military organizations, not just the the SEAL teams. I think something that ties into all of this is you learn early on, and this isn't a SEAL team thing. This is a military thing, but you you learn early on that if you do the little things right, the big things take care of themselves. But it's so true on so many levels. I I, I remember uh, when I showed up at the Air Force Academy and and we had to fold our socks a certain way, where the sock has a little smiley face, and then they had to be in the drawer an exact way, and then the drawer had to be opened a certain way, and then the t-shirt had to not have this kind of fold but this kind of corner and the bed and the dusting and the sinks and the da 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 and I was like, my God, all these little details for what? What is the point of all this? It just didn't make sense to me back then. You know, and then I went to different training and different schools in the Navy and it was the same thing, same thing, same thing. Little things, little things. You gotta do all this little stuff. It didn't make sense to me. Until I went on my first combat deployment, we were in Fallujah and we lost one of our guys. And when you deconstructed everything that happened that night and you look all the way back to the very beginning of the mission planning for for that mission, there was one or two little things that were missed. And those little things ultimately cost a man his his life. And I know this is a very, very extreme yeah. example, but I think it applies to so much. Sometimes these little things in sports, in whatever it is that you're involved in, it, and they might not make sense to you at the beginning, but if you have uh, trusted mentors and leaders in the organization telling you, hey, this is really important, you don't see it now, but you'll see it later. The little things do matter, and um, that can apply to a lot of things and I think that's something that's uh kind of beat into you early on in uh in seal training, and sometimes it it, it takes a, a tragedy to really understand the value and the importance of that yeah, not to be a total downer, but uh <laughs> the little things matter, you know
0: Yes, well, an important lesson for sure, yeah. Now, how did things change? Because when you first got on SEALs, it was still pre 9-11. And then as you are walking out your time as a Navy SEAL, 9-11 happens. Like, how did that change things?
1: Oh, my gosh. It just, it changed everything, not just in the SEAL teams, but none of us will ever forget where we were on 9-11, right? When that happened. I was in Kosovo. We had just done a three day reconnaissance mission on the border of uh, Serbia. And uh, I'll never forget uh, I mean, I was dead asleep and we're out there in Tiny. And that was his nickname. He comes and he lifts the head, the head of my bed up and drops it on the ground. <laughs> Apparently, he'd been trying to wake me up for a couple minutes and I was dead to the world. It's like, sir, sir, get up. We're going to war and i remember we all went into the tactical operations center there and we started watching on this little tv and it was like a half hour delay it was an armed forces network thing we had the antenna with uh, like aluminum foil and wires going out the door to try and get the signal but everything changed not just in in the teams but in the military we we all became so focused on the mission set of the middle east and specifically Afghanistan and and Al-Qaeda piece that came out of that. In the SEAL teams, all of the training amongst all the teams was almost immediately uh, standardized. We used to have teams that were focused on South America, team focused in PACOM or out in the Pacific. Everyone standardized the mission set to get ready for operations in the desert. Some guys, of course, went right out the door immediately. And um, the focus, and this applies to everywhere in special operations, it applies to really everywhere in the military. The whole focus was protecting protecting the homeland and getting after the enemy so this could not happen again. It was a really challenging time, I think, for families especially. In the teams, we had an 18-month workup cycle and then a six-month deployment before 9-11. So it was a 24-month long deal. And then when 9-11 happened, that all changed. Instead of being gone for six months and home for 18, you would be gone for six months and home for six. So you went from a one-to-four rotation to a one-to-one rotation in some cases. That was uh, sustainable initially. But I mean, as you can imagine, Year after year after year of sustained combat operations. Yeah, it was it was really hard, and you know that that gets it kind of into the behavioral health, mental health aspect of the force. But um, and we can talk about that if you want, because I I do think that yeah conversation applies to some of your listening aud- audience when we're talking about stress. I'd love to things like that.
0: Well, yeah, and I mean. The military suicide rate is through the roof. Ugh. I I mean, yeah, I'd would love to talk about that.
1: Like I, I've been kind of going around and talking to different sports teams and some colleges and high schools and and whatnot, and it it's real interesting to me when you and I om, I almost always ask this question more for me versus the audience, but I I ask people to raise their hand if they were born after the attacks on our nation of 9-11. And when you see all those hands go up and then you ask the corollary and you ask, okay, who was born before the attacks of 9-11? And college audiences, you know, there's always a couple, there's always, you know, 15 or 20. But um, it's crazy, Laura. I mean, this country's been in sustained combat operations for over 20 years. That's never, ever happen. And the, this 22 per day suicide rate, a lot of that number is based on back to Vietnam era personnel in, in the VA system, in the tracking system. Oh, really? The average number of deployments in Vietnam was two. We have people since 9-11 that have been on, I believe, over now 20 combat deployments, I had a, uh, a really good friend of mine that went to the Air Force Academy and, uh, he's no longer with us. I'll just tell you his name, Job Price. And Job graduated after me, the year after me at the Academy, but he got into the SEAL teams ahead of me. Remember I had to wait three years and he got right in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, so anyway, he, he was the commanding officer of SEAL Team 4, on his 14th combat deployment and you know the pinnacle of an officer's career in the field teams is being a field team commanding officer and that's what job was doing and um there's there's a lot to this story but the basics are he ended up uh dying by suicide he took his own life in afghanistan and you know it just kind of blew us away when this wouldn't have happened. Because here is a guy and this gets into what I think is important for your audience. Here here's a guy that was recognized in the teams as one of the most resilient operators, one of the most could could bounce back from whatever in the field teams. And he was on his fourteenth combat deployment. And yes there were some bad things that happened on that deployment. And yes he blamed himself But stress and burnout, they're they're real. I don't care how resilient you are as an athlete or as a tactical athlete or as somebody in industry or or business, everybody has a breaking point. And I think that's an important thing to to talk about. I mean, look, I mean, my gosh, my, uh, you know, all, all three of our kids were involved in sports to some degree. And Meg's still uh, in high school and she's running track. And it's amazing how much stress the kids put on themselves. And um, it's just an important conversation. And especially with the COVID stuff. I mean, yeah, oh, you know, I listened to your first show.
0: Yeah. Re- reliving that. Yeah.
1: It was June, right? Right after COVID started. It
0: was like kind of right, right after everything got postponed. Yeah.
1: Right. The games in Tokyo got moved back that Mm -hmm. for a full year. And that was was June, right? Or April?
0: They announced that April, I think. Yeah.
1: April, yeah. And then your first show came out in Mm -hmm. June with Meryl Zagunas. I listened to that this morning. But uh, yeah, the the mental health and behavioral health of uh, people is so important.
0: Well, so what do you think people can do to not hit that breaking point? Like how, how do you push yourself and never give up and, and be this person with all this tenacity and resilience, but not push yourself over the edge?
1: That is the question, right? Especially in a, in a group of type A personalities, how do, you, how do you get them to agree to seek care? You know, that whole stigma of seeking uh, behavioral health care What we did in special operations, uh, and this was while Admiral McRaven was the commander, we went to Congress and we asked for resources to embed in the operational units. So resources like uh, licensed clinical social workers, um, psychologists, even athletic trainers, physical therapists, physical PTs, super important because in the team. And I think this applies to elite sports as well. It's not if you get hurt, it's when everybody gets hurt Right. Um, at some point. I mean, look at your situation, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone gets hurt. And when you're hurt, you're at a kind of a low point and you're vulnerable. If you can have resources embedded in the organization, that's really important because when somebody is embedded in the organization and Working out with with the team or eating with the team or just being available and being seen in the hallways and whatnot, that kind of builds trust and that sort of breaks down some of those walls or some of that stigma of seeking care. And it definitely applies to organizations, um, but sports teams as, as well. What we saw in the teams. Like in the team room, when you saw the command master chief or the commanding officer of a field team go into the office where you knew the social worker worked who was assigned to our team, that carries a lot of weight. When, when you see somebody on an athletic team seeking professional care because of something they're struggling with and not hiding it and being open with it, that's really valuable to the more junior people on, on that athletic team. Mm-hmm. It's incredible how powerful it is when you embed those resources in the organization. I think it's probably one of the best things we've done to help get in front of this mental health challenge since 9-11.
0: I think that's great. I think that's really, really wise. And I love that you're creating a culture of like, these are these are our assets. These are things to help us get better, not just like the stigma around it. It's something that actually helps all of us. I like that. Yeah. And I want to hear, before we run out of time, I really want to hear about a solo swim that you did across the English Channel in memory of one of your fallen teammates and friends raising money for the Navy SEAL Foundation. Tell us about that.
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah. The, the first uh, SEAL Killed in combat after nine eleven was a friend of mine, Neil Roberts, SEAL Team Two. I went to Monterey to get that's the, where the Naval Postgraduate School is. It's actually where I met Ty and, and Devin, mm-hmm. as you know. There's
0: some good friends of ours. Just for our people listening, those are good friends of my husband's who went to college with them.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, just just great, great family. So Ty and I were going to, to school there in Monterey. Well, this is in. Like early 2004, and as you can imagine, being so close to 9/11 with so much going on, for me it was a challenge to be in a school setting knowing that there was so much going on overseas, and uh, so I struggled with that. And um, called my dad, called Mike Troy, and I uh, was like, "Hey, I, I, I need I need a little something extra because I'm kind of I'm kind of spiraling out here." Like with my head in books, and
0: and I and, and
1: I suck at academics anyway. <laughs> and uh, it was Mike that said, um, "Hey, well, why don't you go swim the English Channel?" You know, it's so Mike. He would just he would just throw stuff out there like oral diarrhea. Like,
0: he gives you these really crazy ideas.
1: <laughs> yeah, just go throw something the English channel. And I'm like, Mike, I I was a 200 breaststroker. Never, I don't even know what a marathon swim is. I,
0: I and like how how far is the English Channel? Like to swim across it? How far is it? Uh,
1: as the crow flies, it's twenty-one miles, <laughs> oh, and then gosh. with the tidal shifts, it ends up being significantly further than that because you go through two tidal shifts when you're swimming across.
0: Oh my goodness!
1: So anyway, long long story longer. He kind of planted the seed, <laughs> and I started thinking about it, and I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> Let's go swim in the, in the bay and see how it is. And I remember Ty was with me on one of these first swims and we had wetsuits on and it was freaking cold. And I was like, wait a minute <laughs> for a, for a swim to count and, and, uh, uh, you know, be recognized by the channel association in, uh, Dover, you can't wear any rubber. You can't have any, <gasps> no, there's no wetsuit.
0: Are you serious?
1: Yeah. So I was like, all right, well, I guess I need to acclimate. So I you know, so started it, you know, five minutes and then make it a little bit further and then eventually worked my way up to uh, being in that temperature water for 10 hours at a time. And then um, worked with uh, Neil's wife, Patty, uh, make sure she was okay with me at doing something in memory of Neil and to help uh, with awareness and help raise money for the Navy SEAL. Foundation, which helps a lot with um, families dealing with uh, the challenges after 9-11, especially the families that are Gold Star families with surviving spouses and kids. But back then, there were two main organizations in the teams. There was the UDT SEAL Association and the Navy SEAL Foundation, and neither of them had very much money, so I wanted to raise money and awareness and do a memorial swim in memory of Neil. And um, that was one of the hardest things I've ever done.
0: How long did the swim take?
1: Took uh, 12 and a half hours.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. I'll,
1: I'll I'll never forget. And this ties into one of the last points, I think. But I'll never forget. I was, I was about halfway across. And when you go through a tidal shift and the wind's going one way and the tides are going the other way. Instead of swells, you have kind of like a washing machine chop out there. Oh, geez. And the pilot boat, I could see the pilot boat just all over the place. And I was throwing up. I was, uh, I was getting feet sick. Oh,
0: my goodness. And I remember
1: thinking my shoulder was hurting. Everything on my body was kind of starting to fall apart. I was just past that halfway mark. And all my focus was internal, internal and i remember i look up and it's like good solid 20 knots of wind and i look up and my dad was part of the support team on the uh, pilot boat and he and another uh, friend uh, joe there. i look up and they're holding an american flag in 20 knots of wind you know just like barely holding this thing in the wind <laughs> and i remember hitting me like a kidney punch, like, oh my God, John, what are you thinking? This is not about you. This is about Neil and the others that we're going to lose after Neil's death. And it just lit a fire in me and it changed the whole entire back half of the swim. I love telling people about that because I think it's when you're doing challenging things in life, and of course this would apply to any elite athlete or Olympian. But man, when you're doing something really hard in life, to try and find a way to do it for something that's bigger than self, that's bigger than you, to do it for a reason greater than yourself. And you can do damn near anything.
0: Uh, That's like mic drop moment. Yes, purpose greater than yourself for sure. Well, John, I mean, we could probably talk for like five hours, but I want to- Yeah, let's talk all night for, well, I wish we could. I wish we could. Maybe we'll have a part two, but um, I just want to thank you so much for coming on today and just sharing so much power, powerful messages with us um, that we can apply to our sports, to our lives, to our commitment, to anything. And just thank you for your service and for giving so much of your life to protecting our country and, and the people in it and our freedoms. And we're just honored to have you on today. Thank you so much.
1: Laura, thank you for everything you're doing and um, bringing these important messages, especially to the younger generation that's listening to your podcast, like my 15-year-old daughter who loves your show. Thank you for everything you're doing. It's, It's important work. It's awesome.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guests. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.